Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Welcome to a special episode of New Thinking for a New World. Today, we're focused on the recent U.S. midterm elections. We know the 40-point headlines. Democratic Senate, Republican House, many election deniers denied election. Democrats win by not losing. Republicans prove that when bad candidates deserve to lose, they actually lose. But what happened beyond the headlines? And what does it mean for American democracy? To answer those questions, I have two expert guests. Dick Gephardt, former Democratic congressman from Missouri for almost three decades, who served as both House Majority and House Minority Leader, and Scott Miller, one of America's most successful political strategists with decades of campaign experience working for candidates from both major parties. This material was originally recorded during a Telberg webinar and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Let's start with what each of you think really happened that will have consequences in the next weeks, months, and years for the shape of American politics. Uh, Dick, would you go first? My uh, reaction to the election is uh, there's good news and bad news. On the good news front, which I always like first, is that we had a valid election. And by that, I mean the election was trusted as valid by most Americans, not 100 percent, but a very high percentage of Americans trust that this election was run fairly and there was no fraud and abuse. Uh, And and you got to remember, there have been a lot of allegations of fraud in our electoral process in the last five years. And you also have to remember that this happened in part because our elections in the United States are local. They're run locally. So thousands of people all over the United States volunteered or or got paid very little money to go in and be election workers to both receive the votes, to counsel voters on how to vote, and then to count the votes to come up with the valid results. That's a big deal. If the people in a republic or a democracy lose faith in the electoral process, the democracy is over. It is of, by, and for the people. So that was a big test that was passed by the American people uh, uh, a few days ago. The second was that as far as the result, Uh, I think the middle held in a word. You'll hear a lot of different uh, causes for what happened. Why did the Democrats avoid a red wave or a Republican wave? Why did the Republicans not get the result that a lot of pollsters thought they were going to get? And you can get a lot of reasons. People will cite the abortion decision of the Supreme Court or the economy or this, that and the other thing. There's no way to correctly understand that because 
the American people are complicated. <laughs> Everybody's different. And so you can come up with a lot of different causes. But I think the main thing to look at was that the middle held. The deciders in our elections increasingly because there's more extremism on the left and extremism on the right is that the moderate voters, <clears throat> the kind of non-aligned voters are the deciders. And they, to me, were the deciders in this election. They voted for people that seemed to have their heads screwed on straight, that wanted to solve problems that they were going into. They wanted to have office in order to solve the problems and do public service, not just serve themselves. So that, to me, was very good news. On the bad news front, uh, I think the American people are as divided almost as much as they were in 1860. And there are a lot of reasons we can go into in the discussion about that. I happen to think it's mainly caused by the information culture, not just in the United States, but everywhere in the world, which is uh, tending to drive people to have extreme thoughts, to be radicalized, if you will, and to not get shared facts and information on which they can decide uh, how to vote or how to be a citizen in a country. Uh, as to where do we go now? I'll just quickly say that uh, if the people are divided, then Congress is divided. Uh, it's a reflection of the people. A lot of the people lately have been saying to me, what's wrong with Congress? Why can't they do anything? And I say, don't blame Congress. It's the American people. If the people are in two divided camps, and they don't want any compromises that don't agree with everything they think, then Congress is going to be stymied. It's going to be dysfunctional. Thanks. Scott, how about you? What, what are your big takeaways? you got to remember, our, our, our voters are disgusted with the parties. The, the majority party in this election was no party, was not aligned, as you said, Dick. And, and they, they see the elections as a, a, a buffet table in the worst Chinese restaurant they ever went into. Uh, and they make the, you know, least upsetting choice. Um, but they were not happy. And partly, I, I have a research project that I work on, and it's it's called We Need Smith. It's a long story. But but what we do is is test voters on alienation and anger and frustration. In the high 80s, 84, 85%, all Americans of all demographics believe that an elite of uh, incumbent politicians, lobbyists, big bankers, uh, big unions, big business, uh, big special interests and big media in Washington rigged the system to protect themselves and others of influence, you know, their elites. Um, and, and they're not far off. So when they see their the lack of faith in government, which is pernicious, I, I would agree with, with Dick on that a lot. It's, it's scary. Um, their lack of faith in government and in politics, they feel that everybody who gets in gets tainted, um, uh, it is, is, presents a real challenge 
Um, so resulting, they love gridlock. They, they love Congress that does nothing. Uh, and, you know, a friend of mine, Hank Vigil, said, I, for most voters, ideology is a luxury. And it, and it really is. I, there's this great, great research I recommend to everybody called Hidden Tribes. And on the left and on the right, there are these little peaks of about 8% that are activist committed crazies. And in the middle is this vast plain of what they call the exhausted majority. And the exhausted majority, about 60% of voters, uh, really uh, are exhausted and, and, and tired of the system. But miraculously, they can't come out and vote. And they came out and voted. Um, it, it's interesting what you know, the, the, these independent, we don't have an independent party. It's important to point out to people not, not from America, but we call them independents. They, going into this election, they lean Republican by about six points, 48, 42. In the actual election, they voted Democratic by four points because they go either way. And, uh, you know, you'd have to say there are three factors. Donald, uh, everyone he 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 brought down the entire state of Pennsylvania for the Republicans by his support for uh, Mehmet Oz and, and, and Doug Mastriano. In order to be supported by Donald Trump, you had to kiss the Bible and say that the 2020 election was a fraud. Um, he he Dan Cox in Maryland, Tudor Dixon in Michigan brought you could see they brought down the entire ticket way down the ticket. Um, and so Trump accomplished something once again, uh, as he did in, in, in 2021, which is he turned the, the Senate to the Democrats from the Republicans. And he did it again this time. And uh, you can materially blame Donald Trump for all the ills that he complains about, you know, for inflation, uh, immigration crisis, because he stole the, the possibility of stopping, you know, stopping overspending, all those things. Uh, that was big. Dobbs was big. But the vote on, on, uh, on abortion is, is interesting to look at. If you look at, at American attitudes, by the way, the vote only changed uh, people's positions by two points since 2020. In the in the entire election, but it, it did get people activated and in. The Republicans probably went in with an advantage of about seventeen percent on uh, the independents on inflation. They lost all of that because of Dobbs. But the Republicans are, you know, count on them to be knuckleheads. Uh, abortion overall. Always outlaw 8% of the American people. So there should be none in any case, rape, incest, anything. 8%, mostly illegal, 29%, very wide range. Probably 15 weeks is what they're thinking there. Mostly legal, 35%. And always legal, which is Roe v. Wade, that's where the law was, about 28%. The thing is, the Republicans had plenty of room to move down that scale towards sanity, and they chose not to. Um, they, they, they misplayed every one of the, the issues uh, and, and didn't get any of them. Back to results, as, as Dick did, 
neither party has been informed by this election. They really believe they're on the right track. They just got to go harder. And the, the, the Republicans with a one or you know, whatever it becomes, two seat advantage, I guess it's maybe 11 in, uh, in, in the House of Representatives, will launch investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop and Afghanistan and this and that. They haven't learned. The Democrats, of course, and, and President Biden say, ah, we're geniuses. We're great. We know what we're doing. And and Biden is only reinforced in the idea that he will run. Let's unpack some of that, because there's an awful lot there in both of what you said. Um, and I guess the biggest two bits for me, on the one hand, you're both really quite optimistic that voters get it. Voters want uh, solutions to their problems. Voters don't want crazy candidates. They understand that the extremes run the parties. Um, and they are comfortable with divided government because they are divided, Dick, as you said, on, on, on many issues. On the other hand, you both implied that there are the parties tend not to be reflective of the people in some ways, that tend to push those parties, oftentimes in directions that uh, aren't necessarily good for the country, but far more importantly, that that people don't want. So the obvious question, you, you, you've both talked about, Dick, you said the center held. Uh, Scott, you said the uh, independents flipped, uh, presented with bad choices. They chose the other way. They went the other way. Um, so the obvious question is, how do we fix that? How do we get the parties to actually uh, move to where the people are? To, how, do we re, how do we rebuild that center in political terms that exists, as you both said, among the citizenry? Dick, you spent a career trying to do that. <laughs> well, it was easier to do when I was there a long time ago. So <laughs> that, that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I always say is that democracy is always a mess. It has to be. You've got, in the case of the United States, 535 people in the room, all with an equal vote on every issue that comes before it. Just imagine in your own life being, being put on a committee of 535 people to make really tough, complicated, controversial decisions. So that's where you always have to start this discussion. Democracy is always really hard. Having said that, I believe it is far superior to letting one person make all those decisions. And I think Americans basically understand that. So the question becomes, how do you make it work better than it's working? And that's your question. How, why are the parties not reflecting? I think there are two clumps of things that could be done. And then I'll add a third quickly. The first is Scott is exactly right. The people feel that they don't count, that the, the elites, the big companies, the big unions, the big money, controls the Congress and controls state legislatures, that their vote doesn't count. I'm amazed sometimes that they 
continue to be willing to vote because they feel so left out of the process. And that's a number of things cause that. Uh, You've always got to go back to money because money talks and everything else walks. And uh, I think I was there the last time we passed meaningful campaign finance reform. I work with John McCain across the aisle in both houses to get that bill done. That was, what, 30, 40 years ago we did that? There's not been one thing since. And because of Supreme Court decisions, the amount of what we call dark money that now comes into these campaigns is just overwhelming. Overwhelming. When I was in Congress, my first race, I spent a grand total in a primary and a general election together of $70,000. There are now races for Congress that are in the multiple of millions of dollars. It's just, it can't work. And so at some point, somehow, I've come up with a solution. I, I advocated it in the last few years. I don't know that it can go anywhere, but I think we have to have public financing of campaigns that are willing to restrict themselves to small contributions. The good news is that we now have internet fundraising, which you didn't have when I was there. That could make that work, but you got to pass it, and that's really hard. So that's, that's number one. The second bucket that has to be dealt with is the information culture in the United States. I've thought a lot about what's different from when I was in Congress, uh, when we could reach across the aisle every day. My best friend was Bob Dole when I was Democratic leader. We worked together. We fashioned compromises. We didn't agree on anything, but we figured out how to get a compromise that could get a majority of votes in both houses and be signed by a president. That just doesn't happen today. And I think in large part because of the extremism that's been caused, not just by social media, but by the politicization of our cable channels, but much more importantly, the algorithmic behavior of our social media companies. And as you all know, they need to make money. I get that. They need high ratings to get it. So they use algorithms to pump information to me that will keep me angry and anxious so they keep my attention on the website so they can sell better ads and make more money. And that change is really the change. When I was in Congress, we had people come to my town hall meetings who were racist, who had conspiracy theories, who were just haters, who hated everybody. But they couldn't put a post on one of these media platforms and have it go around the world viral in two seconds. And so we, we've really brainwashed lots of Americans, lots of people in the world, not just in America, to have really untrue beliefs, to not have shared facts, and, and to not be willing to put up with compromises to solve big issues. So those are the two things that I think we got to get the parties and everybody to think about. 
Let's talk about money for a second. Uh, there was allegedly almost $17 billion spent on these midterms, uh, and probably counting because the bills can't all be in yet, uh, which is an enormous amount of money, as you just said. Uh, Scott, you've, you've, you've been on the receiving end of some of that. It's, it's, it, it's both good and bad. Um, how do you think about money these days and elections, as, as Dick just has, has suggested? I live in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and um, our election, Herschel Walker versus the incumbent uh, Raphael Warnock Senate election, uh, which was dead even, uh, what, you know, almost, I don't think it will be uh, on in, in a month when they have the runoff, but it, it ended almost dead even. <clears throat> They've spent $242 million in our little state, uh, which is just great <laughs> for the economy and terrible for the democracy. Um, the, the choice of going to these swing voters, the independent thinking voters who move back and forth and appealing on issues and service, and uh, as Dick was saying, or go to the base, which is small activists, but the money is in the base and the votes are in the swing. And so they go to the money. And as Woodward and Bernstein said, follow the money. Uh, Silicon Valley and Hollywood have a huge uh, influence on the Democratic Party. Libertarian, you know, hedge fund people have a huge influence on the Republican Party, and they love advertising. And the ads are, I've seen them presented to, you know, to these funders, uh, and they, they love them. They love doing negative advertising against opponents. And I'm doing research this year to try to prove that it doesn't work, that nothing works, because the American people, if sophisticated about nothing else, understand marketing. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. Um, so being practical, we, we know this, we've identified, you've identified some of the problems, some of the conflicts. Uh, Congress is unlikely to heal itself. That, that, that's the point of your story that it's been almost three decades since there's been electoral reform. Um, how do we, who, who cuts the Gordian knot? Well, my optimism would on that would be based on some of the young members in both parties that I've met in the last 10 years. Um, and, and I'm sure there's another batch coming in this election in both parties who are coming with idealism, the right reason to come, wanting to do public service, seeing their role as public servants. And so I remain hopeful. Maybe it's stupid, but I love this country and I, I think it's a magical place. And I think most Americans now understand that, still understand that. And I think this young cohort can provide those kind of answers to both campaign reform and lots of other issues that we're hung up on. Uh, I think you're going to have a changing of the guard in the Democratic Party. Um, I think that there is ferment in the Republican Party in both House and Senate. 
They may not change their leaders right now, but I think there's going to be big pressure from Republicans from what we call mainstream districts or swing districts are going to assert. Uh, you surely have some radicals in both parties in the House that will try to assert their views on the leadership. But I think the message of this election will get across. I'm hopeful about that. I may be wrong, but I hope I'm not. And I think the leadership in both the House and the Senate, in both parties, is going to have to get back to problem solving. Let me just add one thing. I have worked from the sidelines with a group in the House for the last four years. They call themselves the problem solvers. They're equally divided between Republicans and Democrats. And they have worked every day to try to bring about bipartisan solutions, which is the only way you solve anything, is bipartisan solutions. They are the reason that the infrastructure bill that passed a year or so ago got passed. But for them, it would not have been passed and signed and in place over the next 10 years. It will yield results for the American people. So that's what I'm hopeful about. I hope I'm not wrong. And I think both parties have to refresh themselves and get back to the middle where the political power in this country is. I, I violently agree about that. I mean, it it has been forgotten. And 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 I think I think you're right, Dick. I'm I share your optimism that uh, the molecules are in motion in both parties um, of change, and uh, it it you know it, it it could go lots of different ways, but but I'm optimistic too. You, Dick, you were class of '78, '76, '76. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, there was so, there was so much optimism. You guys wrote that the gold book or the yellow book, um, yellow brick road, yellow brick road, they called, it. but it was, that was filled with reform ideas. And uh, it was exciting. I hope that these young people can do attract, you know, the alums like you who can come in and help them because uh, they're going to need all they can get to get us back to the middle. Let me be a pessimist in that case. If you're, if you guys are going to take the upper road, let me take the down road. Um, you're going to have a inc an incredibly narrow House majority. Um, there's clearly, as you've both said, um, a lot of tension inside the Republican caucus over personalities, uh, over the last election, over policies. Um, the Senate may have a one seat majority, which which actually matters in the way the Senate works. Uh, but nonetheless, very close in both cases. Two questions. One general, one specific. The general is, do you think that the members got the message that you both hope they got, that Americans actually want government and governance, um, not noise and confusion? And the second question is going to be, do you think this is divided, divided government where nothing happens or where we will see progress on climate policy, on public health, um, on abortion, on pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So which of the two optimists wants, wants to take a whack at that? 
So I appreciate your pessimistic view, which you may not have, but I you always have to have pessimism with optimism. So you're balanced. Um, and, and yeah, I can paint you a scenario where, you know, Kevin McCarthy, if he gets the votes to be leader, has to basically do whatever the left and the right in his party wants to do and therefore just does investigations and and doesn't involve themselves in any any solution to any problem. That could that could happen. On the other hand, um, I, I don't know if he'll be elected or not. That's to be seen. But the balance of power in the Republican caucus in the House is with people who are there for the right reason. They're not radical. You know, moderates are radical right people. They they are there to solve problems. So somehow, some way, Kevin or whoever gets that spot has got to basically respond to that, even if it imperils their position. And this brings me to a, a very important point. I always said to members in my caucus, the people sent you here to solve problems, even if it means sacrificing your position. It is country over party, country over self. You're a servant. You're not here for yourself. And I tried to get members to vote for things that were compromises that were very tough to vote for because they had some elements in it that could threaten their reelection, like raising the gasoline tax in 1993 by three cents. It was like pulling teeth from a chicken to get people to vote for that. They knew it was the right policy. They just didn't want to imperil their own election. But we got them to do it. And the net result of things like that was that the American people felt, okay, I didn't get everything I wanted in that, but the system worked. The democracy works. They are there for me, not themselves. And they got things done that I care about. So that's the optimistic view. That's, in my view, it's the only view. Because if that doesn't work, if, if the pessimism you expressed, Alan, carries the day, democracy will be done. We'll go to that one person making the decisions. Nobody will like it. It'll be a disaster as it always is, but that's where we're going. That's plan B. And I don't think the people want plan B. So Scott, divided government, it's gonna work. Yeah, I, 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 I worry more than Dick about the, uh, um, both sides be uh, hearing the election and and being moved by it they're isolated <clears throat> they're still going to be playing to the money 24 is close in their minds um i i wish i could prove and i think i think you can that the, adverti the advertising doesn't work um and <laughs> it uh it it you know it the, the, at one point, I thought maybe Trump would prove that because he spent about a hundred million uh, in sixteen, and and uh, you know Mrs. Clinton spent a billion, um, and uh, consequently she had to spend all her time raising money, while Trump could could at least go out and, and campaign. Uh, it, 
and 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 Trump as that drunken uncle at what we in America call Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it, the uh, even his most ardent supporters just tolerate him in, in terms of voters, not not the the crazies, but the the ones who hold their nose and vote. He got more votes than any, any Republican candidate in history in twenty. Um, and we know that those people were holding their nose. Uh, 25% went in undecided in, uh, in 2016 into the election, into the voting booth, uh, who were registered and likely, but they didn't know who they wanted to vote for. And the only thing that decided it was a question in research, which said, if Hillary's elected, do the elites win? Uh, and they were two to one, yes. And, they, and that's, that's why they, they move that way. But I, I'm worried about how I, I, I'm so optimistic about the middle as, as Dick is. Dick is, is optimistic. Uh, and you have to, I, I totally agree with him. You have to be. Um, you have to work toward that and believe it can happen. But it's going to be tough. We've got to break the money thing. And, and, uh, and that... Uh, and it shouldn't it shouldn't be hard, except, you know, those rules are written by incumbents, of course. And and uh, and it's a lot of money. One so just minor uh, Trump. Did, I actually watched his his um, announcement and it was there were some very interesting things in it. First of all, to choose Mar-a-Lago as a place to announce your candidacy for the American people. You couldn't be further removed from those voters we were talking about. About 60% of, of American voters are working class. They're, and that's why they're pragmatic. They can't afford not to be. They don't, they don't choose their community. They, they don't have a gated community. They, they don't choose their schools. They don't choose their work crew. They get along. They figure it out. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Trump people, I, I was reminded of the a Beatles concert many, many years ago at Albert Hall. And, John Lennon, when people are going wild, he says, thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you in the audience. And in the box seats, just rattle your jewelry. Well, that, that's what Mar-a-Lago looked like. It was uh, just sparkling. Um, however, and Trump is, is a maniac, and that's why I went away from him after 16. But, and maybe dangerous, but if you could, Pickaxe the Imi Mai's out of his speech. He has gone back to the themes of 2016, not 2020. He's not a victim. He's an insurgent, he says. Now, he won't be able to stick to this, I know, but he, but he, he actually named four, uh, he, he actually used some of the themes that in the last 10 days of the 2016 election, he got on Air Force Trump and hit eight states a day. And the messaging for the first time in the entire campaign was disciplined and clear. It's not about me, it's about you. You're the message, I'm the messenger. I don't know how he did it, but, but some I did, and that pulled him ahead of, of Hillary. Well, he, he's gone back to that, not the victim of a rigged election, but the insurgent. He only said the word rigged once, believe it or not. Uh, he proposed four or five reforms that Dick, you make your jaw drop. I mean, he said he he wanted to uh, in uh, all insider trading. 
by the Congress. He wanted to end uh, anybody moving or staffs moving from Capitol Hill uh, to K Street. He wanted to uh, enforce there being uh, either you pass a budget or you don't get paid. Um, I, I, these came out, you know, I, I know they didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of research that we had done years ago. But he is it's Friday the 13th, guys. They, I always hear that he's dead. Uh, and he's moving. Partly he got in, I think, early to tie the hands of the Department of Justice so that it would look too political if they went after him. But he's going to run. And if he loses, which I think he will, uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's out. And he's not getting money already. Uh, and if he's out, he may run as an independent or what he thinks of as an independent. And if so, it becomes a plurality election, which will draw other people to feel, oh, gosh, this might be my chance. And then Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and maybe Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney get in because it's that one chance. And uh, then Trump gets elected because all those votes come from Biden. I just want to say two things. Yes, I need you to say those things. Okay, okay I will. I agree with Scott entirely. Trump can get elected and, and he is running and he can get elected. But the other thing I wanted to say was that I totally agree with Scott on the lack of viability of negative advertising and how all this money, most of it is wasted. And if we can convince Congress to put in real campaign reform that empowers small donations by the people, we will we will make the biggest blow for this democracy that's ever been done in recent times. Absolutely. That's job one and only. Job one and only for whom? Both. Uh, for the people. All of us. <laughs> this is probably an inappropriate question, but I'll ask anyhow, Dick. Um, how do you see the Democratic Party shaping up? If Biden runs, will he be challenged, do you think? Uh, if Biden doesn't run and there's an open field, who's out there? That's a great question. Uh, and there's no way to know about Biden until he actually announces what he's going to do. He has said he would talk with his family over the holidays and come up with a decision soon thereafter. Um, I, I, there's betting on both sides of that. I have no idea what he will decide. Um, I, I do think there should there will be more push on him to run. By, Dem by some Democrats, because the election outcome was not as nearly as bad as it was anticipated to be. And he may think in his own mind, and it would be understandable that he got rid of Trump for the United States the last time he ran. And now he just needs to do it again because Trump is already running. But putting all that aside, and I think you've got to really get through that decision gate to know what else can happen. Uh, I think there are a number of candidates, post potential candidates out there. Uh, you've got governors around the country. Governor Whitmer in Michigan is somebody people talk about. Chris Murphy is a senator in Connecticut. It makes a very good 
presentation of his values and views. And and uh, Cory Booker, who ran last time, last time uh, did a very good job in the campaign. Uh, and Tim Ryan, who lost for the Senate, uh, but is from the Midwest, uh, really is a very impressive guy in terms of, uh, you know, relating to those 70 percent of people who are workers and not uh, wealthy people in the country would, would be someone people would look at. So there are a lot of possibilities. As Scott knows better than I do, uh, running for this job is really tough. And you kind of got to appeal to left and right and center. And in the end, you have to show human capacity, human values, character that people can believe in and trust. And all of that is very hard to do. And and it, it takes a special person and a really effective campaign to get all that across. Yeah, takes incredible stamina. Scott, on the Republican side, there's a question here about DeSantis. You can't ignore him. Um, and <clears throat> I, um, he won independence in uh, in Florida by 53 percent. He he won Hispanics by 13. He won working class by 27. Um, he he really. Uh, you know, and he overcame uh, whatever Trump influence there was, which was a damper on on most of the Republican election. So, so that was good. I think <clears throat> uh, I I did research on the Trump loyalists in 2017 after he'd been in office for about six months, and these are the people in Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, who were typical strong Trump supporters, hard support, they were not, they didn't like him, <laughs> I gotta say. I mean, they, and they, if, if, if he, if they found out that he was a drunk or a drug addict, they would have said, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, you know, they say this guy's up butt dialing at three in the morning. What is going on with this guy? We thought he would act like president. Remember, he, he was 14 years the celebrity apprentice host as this sober CEO, you know, with fairness and sanity. So, but, and he's not. Uh, and the Republicans, though, do have some interesting young governors, uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, Chris Sununu, um, I, you know, others, uh, the governor of Iowa, governor of Tennessee. I think governors have a better chance in the Republican Party uh, partly because they've they've had to do things. If you're in the Congress, you don't do any. If you've been in the Congress, you haven't done anything, or you haven't done anything the American people like. Um, but governors usually get things done, uh, and the ones who are accomplished are accomplished. They're good executives, so they tend to stand out in in uh, early Republican stuff. It'll it'll crowd up. I mean. Dick forgot to mention Beto O'Rourke. I'm sure he'll <laughs> run for president again. <laughs> I think, yeah. and I don't don't think that Sarah Palin is down and out. You know, <laughs> she may come crawling back. I don't know. I I I think both both parties do have opportunities for for a um, 
you know, for interesting changes, um, whether it'll be DeSantis or not. Usually the early leader is, you know, the one that gets picked on most by by the press and the, and the pundits and, and everybody and the other candidates. So we'll see if DeSantis stands up. He's done a good job in Florida, though. Dick, last thoughts. Well, I have to go back to optimism about this country. I, I just I want to remind everybody that uh, 240 years ago, our founders founded a country and wrote a constitution that was based on what was then a radical idea, which was people could govern themselves and not turn all of that governance over to one person. That was a radical decision, and it's been tested every day since. When Ben Franklin left the Constitution Hall, he was surrounded by onlookers, people from the public who wanted to know whether they had decided to have a monarchy or a republic. And he quickly told them, assuredly, that we have decided to have a republic. And then he walked on, but he stopped and he turned around and he said to the people, we have a republic if we can keep it. We've been keeping it for 240 years, and only the people can keep it. I went door to door in my district through 14 elections to the House every time I went home. And when I say I went door to door, I went door to door for 12 hours a day. And it was the greatest honor of my life to meet those people and to listen to those people. They were my boss. They gave me the privilege of representing them. And I wanted to do that to the best of my ability because they run the country. And that's all we have to remember. And if we can keep on that track and keep people in office who believe they are public servants, not there for themselves, this republic will be kept. Scott, final coda? I have nothing to improve on that. I I, I, I love Dick, and I love Dick's optimism. Um, but it is fundamentally an American quality, and it, it is a leadership quality that's absolutely <clears throat> necessary. So uh, I, I think good things will begin to happen. We've got to address the money issue, and it won't happen for 24. Um, but it's got to be addressed, and that that'll open the way for many other reforms, which are necessary. But but that that one in itself would change everything. If it were just not even dark, <laughs> if it were if it were in the light of day. So thank you both for the past hour. Thank you for what you've done to get us to this point. I have to add one positive comment about Trump, which pains me to, to say. But, Dick, you said to me once that your son had said to you, perhaps Donald Trump's most positive result of his of his efforts is that he got people voting again. So to the point you both made, we can be optimistic if we believe that the people will, in fact, make some good choices in the future. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. 
Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>